Hey, uh, Carvin. Hey, how's it going, Micah? Good. How you doing? Doing good. Yeah. So, uh, hey guys, we have Carvin here on the line on the podcast. To uh, he's a army veteran, and we're going to talk about um, you know being a veteran, the Russia Ukraine war, and uh, some CIA stuff, and China. So, um, what's going on, Carvin? No, not not too much. Just excited to do this. Yeah. So um, can you give us a little bit, a little background about yourself? Yeah. So uh, I actually signed up uh, as an army intelligence analyst. Um, so I signed up in 2001, October of 2001. So that was right after September 11th happened, which um, I actually signed up with no reasoning behind it was, was for 9-11. It was just, you know, my parents tell me you're not doing it. So I, so I did it and I spent 15 years um, going across the globe, going to all kinds of um, fantastic countries, some very dangerous countries. Um, and, you know, got out, once I got out, I got into contracting as an intelligence analyst. Um, and I worked with special operations forces. Um, I did some work uh, in doing that work with the with special operations. Um, I was able to do some work with the CIA, with the DIA, um, and now I've got my own private intelligence company. It's uh, Oakland analytics. That's what I'm doing. Uh, that's what I'm doing these days. I uh, do a geopolitical podcast called this week explained, which kind of deals with uh, a lot of the, the topics I think we'll cover today. Um, we were, we were one of the first ones to start mentioning Russia and Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and we talk a lot about that, uh, under also, the auspice of you know china's relations with taiwan and with the u.s and what possibly could happen um, could happen there but that all is is done through my background of over 20 plus years in the intelligence community okay cool and you said your company was an intelligence um what was it it's called a, again it's a private intelligence company so it does not uh physically work for the the u.s government what it does is work for private corporations offering intelligence analysis for those corporations. Uh, we'll do things like travel security or, um, you know, see if a, if a site that this company is looking to uh, make their headquarters, is, is that a good site? Is it safe? Um, what, you know, is the CEO being followed by malicious people or bots on social media and stuff like that? Okay, so it's a lot of just like kind of like getting information, mainly probably from the internet, right? Yeah. On, so, um, yeah. <clears throat> so it's you know, in, intelligence in this term is all about information. It's about data. So you're pulling in data from, um, you know, from wherever. But social media is a huge part of that, um, and and it used to fall under what's called open uh, open source intelligence or um, OSINT. And social media is kind of blown up, right, in the last 10 years. And so it, it's made its own in, in sort of intelligence analysis um, field, which is now social media intelligence. Um, so we, we combine that sort of open source internet. Uh, open source is just whatever you can find on the internet, in newspapers and magazines. And then the social media analysis is just everything you can find on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, all those kind of things and you, you group all that data together and you can start to predict 
you know, what either what's going to happen or you can predict situations that people are going into. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like, it sounds like it, it would, it's probably pretty difficult, right. To get that information. Like. It... Yeah. So you, I mean, you've got to know, first of all, you've got to know where to get the information from. And, and then also you have to have people um, offering up some of that data. Uh, sometimes we'll have to work with the local police force to get their crime data. You know, other times it's um, co going completely off the grid to go uh, to the dark web or, you know, some other sites like that using uh, like a Tor uh, router or, um, you know, going down, kind of going down that rabbit hole of, of being in places where CD individuals kind of live and thrive and you've got to navigate those and, and then you've got to kind of find the information and validate that information because you can get information from from anywhere it doesn't particularly mean that that information is true or correct or or that that information is is even what you're looking for so you've got to go in and validate it and if you don't have the experience to do that, you can start releasing reports. You can start giving people uh, false information that can actually put them in harm's way. Um, that's that's what we try to do on a day-to-day -day basis is not have that happen. Um, so we'll compile all the data, compile all the information, um, make sure that information is verified. What we do in intelligence analysis is we try to come up with um, multiple um, forms of intelligence. And so if you have a multi-source intelligence um, report, you're more, you've more done the validating portion of that. So you can put that out there and you can show, hey, look, we have these three sources that we have verified this information through. Here is what we think the most likely course of action is. Because you're not going to be at 100% for it, it, within the intelligence community, we're never at 100% until an action actually happens. So we'll use probabilities. We'll, if you can get an intelligence analyst to about 70% probability, that is really good. That's really high. You can almost be assured that what that person says is either going to happen, has happened, or you know, is in the process of happening. If you get them down to you know 20 30 percent you don't you don't basically don't write it off but you try to find uh either more information to validate it or you find a new hypothesis to to kind of go down the rabbit hole of yeah so a lot of it sounds like kind of like yeah like like you said math and probabilities and stuff and like oh yeah there's there's tons it's tons of math tons of probabilities um it's correcting algorithms um, using a lot these days, using a lot of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to kind of create, um, you know, these problem sets to try to answer these problem sets. Now, the the AI and the in the machine learning, it it doesn't perfect what the analyst is doing. You know, it can't it can't move the analyst out of the position completely because that analyst still has to verify the information. Um, so we're not using uh, machines or computers to do all of the work for us. It, you have to verify that information. Yeah, not to go off on an AI tangent, but a lot of people talk about, everybody's like kind of talking about AI and AI at this point really isn't AI, right? It's it's kind of like you programming the machine 
to give you the information that you want, right? It's not actually kind of like thinking on its own. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that would be <clears throat> that would be something that's even that's a little scarier, which is you know what's been talked about in the news and stuff with uh, with Google's AI bot uh, being yeah. being sentient, and and if an AI bot becomes sentient. You have a, a situation like they had in the movie Ex Machina, if you if you guys have ever seen that. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's a very scary end scene there where where a sentient robot AI that's that's continuously learning and continuously perfecting itself, you know, branches out to the rest of the world. It's a very scary idea. That's a, that's a Skynet situation from Terminator. Um, so so what you have now. Is, is that is correct you have you know engineers who are creating these algorithms to perfect an ai or creating an algorithm for machine learning where it perfects itself but it has not become sentient yet yeah except according to that guy right the um i <laughs> yeah. actually listen i listened to multiple podcasts with that guy because he is an interesting guy and i don't necessarily believe what he's saying i even asked him to come on the podcast but um oh, yeah I, I'm forgetting his name, um, but yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, but anyways, yeah, so do you find that in your industry there actually are a lot of – I've actually, like, wondered about this recently. If there's a lot of, like, kind of, like, attacks going these companies and these CEOs, because, I mean, there's got to be a lot of, you know, either disgruntled employees or maybe other companies or who are trying to kind of, like, bring these – other companies down correct so is there a lot of kind of like malicious stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't really even know about with companies like you know amazon google or any company really oh yes and and so all of those you know like the elon musks and the um and the jeff bezos of the world they have their own team of intelligence analysts who are continuously tracking because yeah there are there are evils in this world of people who who kind of want to take people down, uh, whether that's you know, maliciously trying to kill somebody or you know take them down financially. It's a continuously day-to-day process of trying to protect these, especially high-level individuals or celebrities, anybody who's in the news all the time, because there there are tons of malicious people out there just just trying to get to them. So that happened. That's one aspect of it. And now the other aspect is what we call um, corporate espionage, which is other companies trying to infiltrate uh, a competing company and take secrets from, you know, take proprietary information from that company so that they can develop the next new thing, the next new technology before that company does it. Um, and and those that's a billion dollar industry because it's worth you know, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars, if they can perfect the technology before, you know, if, if, uh, if somebody could have protect, predict, or perfected what the iPhone did for Apple before Apple did it, we're, we're not talking about Apple anymore. We're talking about, you know, whatever, Microsoft or something. Um, and, and it's, it, it happens every day. And so you have to have a great team of analysts who can, who can kind of track down that information and continuously combat against sort of those attacks on a company. Yeah. Yeah. And have you worked with any big companies or I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it, but what are some of the uh, companies you've worked with? 
No, I've, I've worked a lot on the sort of defense side of things. Um, companies you'll see like L3, but I've, I've stayed really in a smaller niche kind of group of, um, of more local companies. And then I'll, I'll work with like the, the local police force um, or, you know, working with the mayor's office and, and it's sort of kind of things like that, just to give them information to whether it's investigating to solve a crime or, um, you know, investigating where a phone number is coming from. We'll do a lot of work in uh, tracking down social media, uh, social media accounts of someone, a, a police officer is trying to look for, but they can't, can't find all of their social media accounts. And you can use, you know, variations of names or previous names used or uh, previous phone numbers used and you can find those and and what you get into that when you get into that account you can kind of pull metadata from that account and um, you can either if they're not really a savvy criminal you can find locations up to the minute locations or you can you can take a picture off of their social media and see the last location that they were at. And so that's kind of the things that, um, you know, things like a police force is looking for, or things like a, a local community would be looking for to kind of you know, track criminals down or, or keep the peace in, in there. We'll also work on, you know, if protests are popping up in certain locations, uh, we can kind of track down uh, through social, through things like Twitter, uh, conversing through Twitter or conversing through Facebook, you know, is it, does it look like, can we predict whether it looks like it's going to get violent or can we predict where that protest is going to move? Um, can we predict where we can keep communities safe from a, uh, a violent action? And so that's where we'll, we'll use social media a lot because people love to talk on social media. They love to, um, to put information out there because uh, it's, it's where we get, uh, if you have an event, that's that's the biggest place where you're going to get the most amount of eyes on for for people to see and to come out and to uh, and to participate in that. Hello. Yeah, sorry. About, oh, sorry. oh, get, no get Some water in there. Yeah, no problem. Um, okay, so yeah, the dark the dark web is an interesting place um do you like do you have to go on there and almost like be like an undercover cop type thing where like you're you're going on and like kind of pretending that you're somebody that you're not to try and get information or something is that kind of stuff that you do uh no not really i mean the the information's all there the the, okay. the issue with it is you know keeping your uh keeping your hardware safe a lot of times um so you'll you'll use VPNs, um, you'll use different routers, uh, kind of things things like that to protect yourself, um, because once you get into these uh, sort of these this dark web software and, and you go down these rabbit holes, you start to notice that there are people within that are trying to attack your IP address, or they're they're trying to figure out your location so that they can um, they can identify you. And see, are you a trusted source for them? Because even even criminals have trusted sources. That there are people that those are the only people they trust and the only people they want to talk to. So you don't really have to interact 
with people on there. You just have to see, you know, what they're doing. So it's kind of, it's not like where the FBI comes in and they'll have either, uh, I don't know, you know, they'll have an informant or they'll have somebody going undercover that it's, it's nothing like that. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of things already that I, I would want to talk about, but I know we want to get to some other stuff. So first of all, um, where did you, where did you grow up? If you don't so mind I, me asking. Yeah, I, I grew up in a, in a small town in Southern Louisiana. We're about three hours from New Orleans, but, um, spent a lot of time in New Orleans and, uh, and really grew up in what's like what's called Cajun country. So, so it's a very French background, very good cooking, um, nicest people, nicest people you'll ever meet. Okay. Then you said you joined the army at, and, um, during like right after nine 11, can you kind of like go into the army a little bit more? Like what exactly did you do? Uh, where did you get stationed? Any, um, any crazy stories, any crazy like war stories? Yeah, let's see. Um, I don't know any any crazy stories, but yeah, I was uh, so I went out to Fort Jackson for my basic training. Uh, when I was done there, it was my advanced individual training, which is AIT, which is where we we learned the job that we were going to do. Um, my initial job was as an imagery analyst, which is just taking satellite photos. There, I was. I went to Fort Huachuca, which is in Arizona. It's uh, a semi-border town of Arizona. It's been about six months there, learning how to identify military pieces through this through satellite images. As soon as I was done there, so so while I was there, it was 2003, um, and so in the in the midst of graduating from that, you know, President George W. Bush declares war on Iraq. So we're in war with Afghanistan. Now we're in a war with Iraq. And about a year, yeah, it was about a year after I left my advanced individual training. I was geared up and ready to go. And we deployed out to, uh, we deployed out to Iraq for 18 months. And yeah, I'd, at that time I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go out. I wasn't the, uh, I really didn't even want to be in the army. I was just going to do four years and get out. But, you know, I got out there. And, uh, I, so while you're in Iraq, you get this time where you can take like two weeks of leave and, and go, go back home. So I do that, go back home, and I, I come back. And, and I come back, and it's the uh, Iraqi elections. And uh, as I come back, I learn that, you know, I've been told, hey, you're going to be stationed over at the um, Iraqi police station that was nearby, embedded with the Iraqi police uh, for those elections. And it, it was probably an experience that really changed my perspective on everything because, you know, when you're in a war, you kind of uh, dehumanize people because at some point you're going to have to kill these people. And for a lot of the time, it was like, well, you know, you're, you're getting bombarded with all this dehumanization of the people you're interacting with. And then, and then I get out there and I get to the police station and it's these incredible people who are fighting to, to save their country from a terrorist organization that is coming in and, uh, you know, completely 
trying to obliterate their entire government. Now, that's not to say that the U.S. didn't go in and completely ob obliterate their government to start with, but these were individuals who were trying to do good in their country. And it, and it totally changed my perspective on who these individuals were. And so as I, I left Iraq, I told my, uh, my individual company, uh, so that's what the smaller... In the army, you've got you know divisions, brigades, battalions, and a company. So, so my company commander, you know, I want to, I want to go out. I want to learn Arabic. I want that to be you know part of my job. And seeing as they had an opening for it, they said, okay, you can go out there. And, and I had the experience of my life because I got to go out to the Defense Language Institute, which is in Monterey, California. And it is gorgeous. Uh, it's, it's the best place you can be stationed. And I spent a year and a half learning Arabic, getting in, immersed in the Arab culture. And I just had this, this great uh, feel for the culture and, and loved it and enjoyed it. And from there, uh, started to just volunteer for all kinds of different deployments. I've, I've been able to go to Iraq and Afghanistan um, all through West Africa, um, some places in East Africa. I've been to Yemen. So I've seen all these countries with all this history. And you get such a better perspective for the people, um, you know, how, how great their culture is. Uh, I, I love to identify cultures through food because coming from Louisiana and coming from a culture of, you know, when you eat dinner, you're asking, so what are we going to have tomorrow? And kind of in doing that, um, I, I go out to all these countries and just immerse myself in their food. And seeing as I knew the language, I, I was able to just interact with some incredible people um, and and get their story and understand who they are. And it it kind of helped me progress to see people as humans. Um, and kind of to stop this bitter back and forth that war always starts in people's heads. Um, and, and so that is what I, I really intended to do with starting the company um, as soon as I got out of the military is to, um, to do these intelligence reports where it's, you know, it's a travel report. And for anyone who wants to go out to any various countries, like, going out to Kenya, how can you stay safe and enjoy the culture there? And so, so that's really what I love to experience in the, in the army was getting, you know, a, I got a PhD in culture really. Yeah. And so was most of the stuff that you were doing kind of like um, behind the scene, kind of like intellectual stuff. Did you see any like hand to hand combat type stuff? Um, I, I went out a few times, um, without any, you know, sort of, uh, violent reactions or, um, you know, being in a firefight or anything like that. So yeah, my, my career was mainly in the background, um, identifying terrorist networks and who their leadership is, 
um, creating targeting packets, which is just a packet of a person that we have identified that is probably a terrorist, and I need to identify the information that confirms whether or not that person is a terrorist. Um, I worked a lot with uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, so I was um, we we do a lot with um, gathering intelligence through. So what we call it is intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. It's a ISR. And we utilize these vehicles in order to uh, extract information of a given, of a particular site or a particular person. Um, and it kind of helps identify those, those pieces of information and those data points that you want to identify when you're creating a targeting packet on, on a terrorist. Okay, and I'm, I'm sure it was it was probably obviously great um, a great education for what you're doing now, right? It was like, oh yeah, it was it yeah. was the best education I could have had for for doing what I do now. I mean, I, I spent 20 years doing it, so yeah, um, I, I could have never gotten this kind of experience just going to college for four years. Um, it it so, thrust me in there. So you were in for was it 20 years that you were in? I was in for uh, for fifteen, but I've worked uh, in the intelligence community for over twenty years now. Okay, and aren't you able to like retire from the military? Is it after twenty years or or how? Yes, yeah, so, uh, usually after um, twenty years, you can you can retire. Um, I got to fifteen, and it just wasn't for me anymore. And I had you know a lot of uh, very important people to me that pushed back and and kind of said that I should probably stay in you should probably do a 20 but um I think I got out at a good time and uh it, it I guess that experience had run its course and I knew I needed to do something different and I knew I needed to accomplish something that was uh more important than what I was doing in uniform yeah I get it man um 15 years is a long time in the military right yeah. especially when you go in and you're like I'm going to do this for four years and then I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to go in. Um, I obviously want to cover, like you said, the Ukraine, Russia and then China and the CIA and all that. But first of all, speaking of the, the war in Iraq, how did you feel about the, the whole thing? Like you kind of said you went and met some of those people and they actually seemed like nice people. And I've heard a lot of things like we don't, re we didn't really know why we were there and, and all that. Can you um, talk about, well, first of all, um, why were we there? I mean, I know we were, we obviously went over there, but aren't there weren't there like a lot of questions? Kind of like why are we still there? And recently, we we pulled out, right? Of um, was it Afghanistan yeah. or? Yeah. So um, yeah. So recent, most recently, we pulled out of Afghanistan. Um, yeah. More recently, we um, well, not more recently, but yeah, you know, before pulling out of Afghanistan, we did pull out of Iraq. Uh, and then had to you know, put troops back there to uh, to try to protect the uh, Kurdish population that's out there. But, you know, to answer that very first question of um, why were we there, and there's a lot of, of theories on that. Now, um, the main reason was that um, what is seen as a failure of the intelligence community was that the Bush administration was shown through um, Secretary of Defense Colin Powell 
and through imagery analyst. Me, I, I wasn't involved in that one, but I, I was an imagery analyst. That Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and that he was going to use those weapons of mass destruction. Now, uh, to this day, none, uh, none of those have been found at the, um, to the extent that the Bush administration thought they were there. You know, there have been some talks about these, you know, smaller chemical weapons, things of that nature, but not like a nuclear weapon or something that can cause mass casualty. So that that's why we went in initially. Now there was there was a lot of talk of, well, we went in because Saddam Hussein was talking to Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was the mastermind of 9-11. And so if we're going to um, if we're going to destroy um, Al Qaeda and destroy Osama bin Laden, we got to get to Saddam Hussein as well. And now there's there is zero proof that the two worked together. Um, but really, the 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 main point of going into Iraq was Saddam was an evil dictator. He really was to the point where. Um, you know, if, if the Iraqi national soccer team had a bad game, uh, they would be beaten or, you know, family would be taken from them. So he was brutal and he was evil. Um, and yeah, he should have been taken out. Maybe it shouldn't have been a full-fledged um, U.S. boots on the ground kind of situation, but he needed to be out of there. Now, where I, I think... I, I still today don't think that we failed in going into Iraq. Where we failed um, as the United States military was staying in Iraq. Um, there was a point where, you know, early on, it was de December of 2003, where we found um, Saddam Hussein holed up in a cave. Um, it wasn't even really a cave. It was sort of this underground bunker. Um, found him and arrested him. You know, at that point, mission is accomplished. Give him to the people and, and let them sort it out. So we, we kind of made a mistake in staying for as long as we did. Because we what we didn't want was to increase. Uh, so we kind of saw that there are these terrorist organizations that started to infiltrate into Iraq. And then we also saw that Iran was pushing people into Iraq. And we kind of wanted to fight back against that. But what we created was a bigger network of terrorists. Because every every person you pick up, every, you know, every soul, every bad encounter with a US military personnel makes a new terrorist. And so for staying so long, we kind of increased that network. So I think that was a mistake. Yeah, and I've I've heard that that. I don't know how much truth there is to you know anything that I say, but honestly, I haven't I haven't researched enough. But <laughs> I've heard that like we like somebody has people have told me that like we created ISIS. Like, is there is that kind of like what you were talking about right there? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, ISIS was created as a, as a caliphate, but um, what do you mean by caliphate? Like. Uh... Well, in in Islam, um, a caliphate is is sort of like um, they would consider it. Um, 
the the peak of of who they are um, and they so to to have that caliphate you can now um, start a jihad or a war um, with western forces which is what isis wanted to do and um and so in in staying in iraq and and then what actually really increased or or started isis was moving into places like Libya and Syria and Yemen. And so U.S. troops are going into all these other uh, Middle Eastern countries, all these other is nations of Islam, Muslim nations, and doing what we call uh, democracy building. Um, what they saw it was is uh, destroying their culture, destroying their religion, and in, in doing that, they needed to take up arms against the evil West and and destroy it. And so that's what they, they tried to do with ISIS. And, and it kind of got pushed back a little bit. Um, I think it was Trump that said that he defeated ISIS and destroyed ISIS. Well, they're back again. So there, there is really no defeating them or, or killing them because... Um, what they believe they are doing is this sort of religious war. And, and until the West is defeated, they cannot stop that mission. So by saying that we, we created ISIS, that kind of means we didn't really actually create ISIS. They just started ISIS because we were there. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of that catch 22 or, or the chicken or the egg, you know, which, which came first. Yeah. Yeah. Did did the U.S. military going into Muslim countries create ISIS, or was ISIS always going to be created? We'll never know. Um, but I I do think that some of the stuff that the U.S. has done has um, you know emboldened that group to to do more violent actions. Do you think that the action was good? Like we really wanted to kind of go in and. Our, our goal was to kind of go in and, like you said, create democracy, which which we think is better. They might not. They they probably really do think it's better, but they just don't know. Right. Because I, I heard yeah. from, I've heard from I've heard from people that like. I want I don't even remember where I heard this, but it was like. Um, we were there, like trying to help them, and it was like instead of them being like, OK, help us, they were just kind of like, no, like we don't want your help. Because they're they're so yeah, brainwashed was, out there, right? It was so early on. It was um, oh, thank you for coming. You know, thank you for for liberating us. And then it got to a point where it was, well, what are you guys still doing here? You know, why are you disturbing our peace in in this manner? And that's why I, I mentioned before that we kind of just stayed too long. You know, we yeah. went from from mission accomplished. If you remember, if you're if anybody remembers that time and president Bush gets on a, um, an aircraft carrier and he puts up the big mission accomplished sign, that's the day you get everybody out. Um, but it kind of went from mission accomplished to we need to finish doing peacekeeping operations, um, which, which peacekeeping operations turned into, uh, the, the need from general David Petraeus for a surge of troops because, these terrorist groups had gotten in and the country had become a violent, um, just a violent war zone. 
Yeah, and so it sounds like a lot of it may have been kind of like a lot of the troops were kind of like going maybe maybe like kind of took advantage of the whole situation by going into like other countries and maybe kind of like I don't know, you know what I mean? I'm kind of just asking this like while we were there maybe we took advantage of how much power we had or something, you know what I mean? Oh, 100, like, yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah. Like I talked about before, in war you have to dehumanize the enemy. Um but but when you do that, you know, you you've got these are basically kids. You know, I was I was 19, 20 years old when I deployed for the first time. Um, you don't fully grasp what what's happening out there. Um, you know, and you you get these kids in war. I mean, talk about World War II, and you've got these uh, you you got Americans calling Germans dirty krauts, or you, know, you get to Vietnam and you, you've got terrible terrible names for individuals and that's the mindset you have to have in order to um you know in order to fire a weapon at somebody else in order to take someone else's life you have to have that mentality but when you're in a peacekeeping mission and you have that mentality it's totally you know off of what you're supposed to be doing you should be humanizing and lifting up these people and we did have that we did have those situations where um, we had a lot of campaigns where we were giving toys and food to kids and, you know, we were paying families to, to keep their, keep their children from starving and things like that. But all that got overshadowed the moment a, a weapon was fired and someone was killed, um, especially an innocent person that was killed. And, and it's a tragedy. And, and as soon as that happens, you, the same people you are giving food and and you are giving education to start to rise up because this tragedy occurs. So there's this this like uh, you know there's this just all these events that go in to changing someone's mindset. Uh, you can you can quickly change a person's mindset from being a friend to being a complete enemy just by one situation um and sometimes it's no one's fault sometimes it's just a mistake and and that happens and now you've gone to oh we were keeping the peace to now we're gonna have to actively fight against these people and that's kind of what it turned into and in, in starting in like 2007 2008. yeah so going so just kind of like summarizing it, just this is really honestly for myself. We kind of started the war with Iraq because we thought that they had weapons of mass destruction. And then we kind of started the war with Afghanistan because of 9-11. Is that overall correct? Like, Yeah, I mean, uh, so, so 9-11 happened. Uh, U.S. intelligence stated that Afghanistan was harboring Osama bin Laden. He was the ringleader, the mastermind of 9-11. And, which he which um, he was right he was yes yeah 100 not to get off on this tangent but do you think there is any type of conspiracy do you believe any type of conspiracy going on with um any of it the 9-11 stuff no i don't i don't put a lot of stock in in a lot of that kind of conspiracy because me i know people especially within the government and no one can shut their mouth yeah 
so it would have to be very a very small group, and I'm talking just two people um, who put together this conspiracy. And and you're talking something that to to do it successfully, you would have had to have had hundreds of people working together in in perfect harmony, not saying a word about it. Um, I just cannot believe that that happened. I haven't read yeah. anything that that proves that it happened. Um, I, I've read I've read the conspiracies. I'm not a guy that's just going to dismiss conspiracy theories, but um, there's nothing I've seen that that has proven it to me. Now I'm also not going to say I'm not the guy that says there's nothing that can convince me otherwise. Um, if I see logical, factual proof, then I will go down that rabbit hole with you. Yeah. I was actually going to wait to ask you the conspiracy theory thing in general. We can go over that later. Um, just so okay. we stick to stick to this. But anyways, you were saying you were saying that we so we knew um, Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan and that was the main reason why we went there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We understood that um and and at the time we kind of thought that the Taliban was uh was harboring him and so it was decided that you know if they're if a terrorist organization is going to hit the United States of America, then we're going to strike back. And we went in with the you know the full force of the U.S. military, and for a while there, it you know Afghanistan to us was known as the forgotten war for so long, because people were just going there and nothing was happening. It, it didn't happen. Didn't start until. Well, around 2011 or 2012, that we started seeing this uh, surge of in, this insurgency, the, these terrorist groups coming in, and um, and starting to build their network and fight back against the coalition troops. Yeah. Okay, you can keep going. I didn't. I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, so um, so that's they started to um, build an insurgency there. And so what happened was, and I think maybe what a mistake occurred was they tried, the, the U.S. military tried to um, utilize the framework that was successful in Iraq when they surged the military by tens of thousands uh, more troops, which worked in Iraq. It pushed back that insurgency, but Afghanistan was such a totally different beast that as soon as we started putting those uh, tens of thousands of new troops, the insurgency built up bigger, and they were able to use the terrain much better. Uh, the terrain in Afghanistan, now Afghanistan's known as uh, the empire destroyer or the empire killer, because any empire that wants to go into Afghanistan learns very quickly that the, the terrain is not beneficial to uh, an enemy combatant is only beneficial to those who know the terrain. So these insurgency groups kind of use that to their advantage. So when we surged the troops in, we spent a lot of money on, on getting those troops in there. And, and what we saw was this uh, advanced pushback against it um, to the point where we started to have to surge with uh, what is now you know, colloquially known as sort of these uh, drone strikes. And we just, uh, instead of using U.S. troops to attack these terrorist groups, we started using drones to strike these groups. And that, that sort of protected troops 
But what it also led to was, you know, certain mishaps because you're not a hundred percent precise all the time. So you would have these sort of, um, unfortunate mishaps where buildings were hit or walls were hit, or unfortunately, you know, people who were not part of a terrorist organization were hit. And then, um, what came with that is just what you what we talked about in Iraq when you had you know you misfired on a civilian and now you have another uprising because of course it, something tragic happened and, and these people are, are going what are you still doing in my country get out of my country and that really all lasted until last year when uh, you know last August they Biden administration decided that they were going to completely leave Afghanistan and just give it back to the Taliban. And do you, do you agree with that decision? I mean, I, I agree with the decision to pull out. I don't agree with putting a timeline to it um, I, because what I saw in, in reading the reporting and seeing the aftermath of it was no decision-making. There was no planning that went on um, within the government. You know, the, the U.S. military planned all all these great things to get out of there. Um, but you can't predict everything that's going to happen. Um, the early predictions were that it, the Taliban, if they ever do take back over Afghanistan, it would be years. And in before troops even left Afghanistan, the Taliban had already taken over. And so that's what happens when you put a timeline and you put that timeline out there. Um, the main thing that happens is an enemy combatant will just wait it out and, and just want you to leave. Now, what we saw was the Taliban didn't do that. They said, okay, we know when they're leaving. Um, we see them consolidating troops on a site. So let's start moving to those sites that those military personnel used to be. And let's take over those sites. And they went city to city and they just kind of took over everything and now they control that government and I, I will tell you this that that is terrible for the women of Afghanistan um, these are these are young girls and women that uh, we promoted into schools and to get an education and to be a part of the government that's now been completely stripped from them uh, because of this really really strict religious upbringing yeah and so what's the difference between once again, I probably sound stupid asking this, but what's the main difference between or the difference between um, the Taliban and ISIS? Is Taliban mostly well, Afghanistan and ISIS is Iraq or? Well, or it's, it? there's there's different ideologies um, and a lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it is location based. Um, so, you know, not getting too deep into the weeds of it. It's it's a lot of an understanding of, you know, a particular portion of the religion. Um, and then it's just who's involved with it. So while all of, all of these organizations that we're talking, these terrorist organizations we're talking about in the Middle East are all based, you know, Islamic uh, terrorist organizations, they have differing opinions on what Islam is. Um, so, you know, a lot of the factions have differing opinions on who should be in leadership. And so just like we look in the U.S. as uh, in politics and stuff, 
um, you can kind of look at it as it's a different political faction. So the, the Taliban mainly works out in, in the different stands, the, the Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan. And you've got to realize that you know, we as, as a Western culture kind of created their borders for them, but they don't have borders. So a lot of these areas are community-based. Um, they're tribal and, and that's kind of where the, the Taliban is taking advantage uh, of that. They go, well, you know, we're all part of this, you know, one uh, religion. We all have these very strict conservative um, beliefs. And this is, uh, this is how we're going to go about controlling the government. Where I see the difference is, um, so, so ISIS is more a global, they, they want a global power. Um, they, they want to bring Islam back to where it was uh, hundreds of years ago, where it controlled uh, a lot of Northern Africa and Europe and, and places like that. If you think about like the Crusades um, and, and then taking down Constantinople and making it Istanbul, that's kind of the thinking they have, where the, the Taliban thinking is more tribal they um they they are fighting for their own kind of area and i don't see them really as a threat to western um you know western forces or coalition forces that kind of stay outside the purview of afghanistan in those kind of areas whereas isis will um, actively engage in terrorist acts outside of their purview outside of things like uh, Lebanon and Libya and places like Syria. So they're looking to go into uh, the UK and France and the United States and, and create mayhem and terror. Um, but the Taliban kind of just stays locally. Okay. Okay. So you were, I have so many questions, but you were, and I yeah. still want to get to Russia and Ukraine, but um, so you mentioned the terrain and also mentioned how, like, I guess the stands don't really have borders. Like it's in, in their eyes, they're just all kind of like one big country that we, and we've made the borders. Well, and, but yeah, so you mentioned, you mentioned the terrain and probably, uh, I listened, did you listen to serial, the podcast serial, uh, with the whole bow, um, yeah, I, I listened to the the Bo Bergdahl. Yeah, yeah. The reason why I bring that up is because I just I found that pod that podcast just so intriguing. The fact that he like yeah. left and like was just basically roaming through like essentially like an alien country because I have no clue of what it looks like. And I was like, man, that just must be so insane. But you were yeah. there, right? So yeah. How how would you describe the country in general? Not even necessarily the terrain, but more like their living situation. Is it just totally third world country? Like they're living in like, kind of like um, living in um, tents almost, or like um, what do they call those? Like kind of uh, sheds or or whatever. Like is it just super yeah. awful living situations? Because I, I I've heard in some sorry I've heard in some places in the Middle East, like such as Dubai and other places, like they're like oh I've been there and it's fine. But in the places you were, was it just was it just awful, all of it, or was there some good parts in it? Was there any cities like, like oh, normal yeah. so, cities? Um, and, and to speak of like, so the Gulf, 
those those are the Dubai and places like that are the Gulf countries, very rich. Um, you know, they're oil rich, so they, they've got a lot of money. And there's it is beautiful out there. And and when you talk about a place like Afghanistan or or Iraq, and you kind of hear if you watch movies and stuff, it just kind of looks, you know, it's all sandy and there's these sheds or shacks that people are living in. And, you know, for the most part, it is very rural like that, but, um, there, there are some major cities. Um, so you have, um, we were in like Jalalabad or if you're in, um, any, any like central, so central Afghanistan has a few cities in it that, it, that it's kind of built up, you know, it's got, it's got its own international airport. Um, and, and those have, you know, sky rises and it has an infrastructure, but when you get to, um, sort of the kind of the provinces that I was in, in Northern Afghanistan, which would be like, uh, the Kandus, it's very rural and people are living in sheds or they're even um, shepherds, you know, who are just living moment to moment where they'll either um, sleep outside all the time or they'll go from one shack to another. And so when I talk about how there's no borders there, um, right, you know, st sitting right on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, you can see people um, going back and forth across that border with without doing without showing papers or anything like that, which you would think it, you know you you being in the U.S. and you try to get into Canada, you know you're gonna be stopped at the border, asked for your passport, things like that. What what has kind of been done with making those borders is that um, these are these areas are tribal. So these, these tribes have built out their own communities, and now we've kind of cut them in half with some of the borders that we've created. And so what we think is, uh, is odd behavior moving back and forth across the border is just someone doing what they've done for their whole life um, in being a part of their tribe. And so they kind of break it out into those tribal communities where they will, they will live as, as a family, as a community, like we would see our own um, city or, or state even. As you, can, you think of this, the state that you're in, if you would think of that as your own tribe, and everybody in there um, has been in that tribe forever, and they've never gone anywhere else, and you know, you know all the families there, you, you, you marry into someone else from that tribe, and you never you never branch out. And really that's, that's how those outskirts of the bigger cities of Afghanistan look. It's very, um, rocky mountainous terrain. Um, and it, it is a lot of people who are, are living in, in a shed, but they're living an, an amazing, great life because they're living the only life that they know. And, um, and I kind of saw this we drove from Kuwait into Iraq in 2004 and we're getting, we're crossing the border of Kuwait and we start going through these very small rural areas of Iraq. And it's literally 
these uh, straw fences and thatch roofs that you would think you're seeing in the 1300s. And these, you know, the families that have lived there have lived there their whole lives, and they've never moved out of the 1300s. And they have no concept of, of technology. And uh, sometimes I think that I myself kind of envy that of if I didn't know any better, if I didn't know anything about, you know, computers and technology, would I rather live that life isolated from everything, not knowing anything? Um, it's kind of like that. Would you live in the cabin in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, you know, for 40 years? Could you do that? And, and I think being inundated with technology as much as we are, there are a lot of people now that are, that are saying, yeah, I would rather live that life. That's sort of the yeah. experience I had there. Yeah. And that was like, I mean, obviously not to compare you to the Unabomber, but that was like the, Unib the Unabomber's yeah. whole thing, right? It was like, he was like, I don't want, and it's like, that's the whole thing with him, obviously, was like, that's fine if you don't want it, man, but don't, you know, don't <laughs> be blowing people up. But yeah, but yeah, the whole thing, yeah, the whole thing with tech and computers, it's like, I, I love tech and computers, but... So yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard for me yeah, to say. Yeah, I had that the I, like I had the first iPhone, I had the first iPad. I love yeah. technology. I'm an early adopter. Yeah, um, I definitely see what you're saying. Sometimes I'm just like, man, I just want to go, you know, up and live you know, away from it all. I think I think it's all about how like we use it and it's like I think that one thing that I heard somebody say I was I think it was on Joe Rogan's podcast. It was like um it was like, you know, they said that like technology was supposed to make it's Graham Carlson. If you know who that is, on, but yeah. he was like, technology was supposed to make our lives easier, but it's really kind of just made our lives harder. And it's like, that's, that's true. But it's like, I think that they're like, just ex our jobs or whatever are just expecting so much more from us now that we have technology instead of like, instead of making our lives easier, it's actually kind of made our lives harder. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have, we have a, an increasing mental health, um, pandemic oh, based yeah. solely on technology, that technology being social media, um, that technology being for-profit news media um, that, that does these like clickbait sort of headlines. It, and it's inundating us every day. There was a, um, I read, I was reading an article from the you know, 1800s from, it, it was when the, the telegram came out first first time the telegram came out now if you think of the telegram you're thinking you know uh sorry it was the telegraph and um so communication was for the first time able to travel from europe to the u.s you know in a, in a matter of, of hours or in a day and the guy was writing in and, and he was saying what is this going to benefit society if we know who died on tuesday on Tuesday, as opposed to knowing the guy died on Tuesday, on a Thursday, um, is that going to benefit society? And and it kind of gets me thinking because now we are at it. Instant news media. You know, I can if something happens in Ukraine, I can know about it as it's happening. If I go on Twitter, I can possibly see video footage of it as it's occurring so now we've gone from that communication within 24 hours 
to that communication instantly. And that affects your, your mind and that affects your mental health in a very bad way. Um, especially if you keep going down that hole. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I meant Graham Hancock and there's, there, there was also right. a Randall, a Randall, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. On Joe, yeah, on so, Joe Rogan. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Graham Hancock is the, um, fingerprint of the gods, which I have that book. I've read that book and uh, fascinated by it so much. Exactly. And I could definitely go off on that guy for a while, but, um, <laughs> um, trying to, trying to stick to this topic. Um, so, or that subject, um, but, um, yeah. So in terms of this subject and we could also go off on, I could go off on this subject for an hour, but, um, in terms of this subject, I think, like I said, I think that there's good and there's bad to it. I think that, that it, that it can be good. I, I don't think that we're using it for good. Right. I, I don't want to be like, um, uh, I don't really want to be like, you know, um, bragging about myself or anything, but I feel like I, I personally do a pretty good job at kind of separating myself mainly from the news. And it's, that's not even a good thing. It's like, honestly, I don't know enough about the news, but it's like, I know people, my family, um, who are just constantly watching the news, Fox news or whatever. And it's like, man, it's really, and not only Fox news, but other stuff too, that's, you know, conspiracy theory driven. And these conspiracy theories have really gotten out of control. You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't know why people are believing anything they hear on the internet but they are but i do think that there is if we're using it the right way i think that it is good but like i said we're not using it the right way so you could obviously make the argument that you, we should be using it the right way but most people aren't and it's hurting our country and it is yeah so. i just i don't get why and, and i i tell this to a lot of people um when they ask me about certain things and they get angry or, or they start you know lashing out and, and yelling and things like that and, and it's like why are you who may be in new york so concerned about what's going on in houston texas or why are you in la concerned what's what's going on in um you know arlington virginia that's not affecting you but yeah you get so worked up about it um, and and yep. I've had so many family members like getting worked up about, you know, leaders in Germany. And I'm like, what are you getting worked up about? That does not affect you at all. And then they don't yep. want to focus on things like what's going on in, in Ukraine and Russia. Um, or they want to focus on the conspiracies about that. And it's like that could very well affect you. Yep. And so. I want to get to Russia and Ukraine, which I also know very little about. But um, one last question on this is, so first of all, you, you kind of said how the people in Afghanistan, and I'm not sure about Iraq, but I don't know if you meant Iraq too, but they're living a fine life. Like they're, they don't know any better, so they're happy. They don't want us there. But for one, do mm -hmm. you actually feel like, especially the women and because of some of their religious beliefs do you feel like they actually really are living a good life and then two do you feel like there is something well first of all should we do anything about it or should we just be like you know what it's a different completely different country across the world let's just let them deal with it themselves or do you think there's a better way that we can handle it than we did yeah i think the policy should always be to you know let countries 
affect their own citizens the way that they do it. Um, no, we would not want, and we don't want a country like Iran uh, putting troops on the ground in, in the U.S. and telling us how we should run our country. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I get, you know, countries in like Iran, Iran's going through a revolution right now. They're, they're doing protests um, and, and there's this real feminist revolution going on right now. Um, and yes, the way that some of those cultures treat women, I consider um, despicable. But who am I to say? Uh, I, I'm an American. I should, I should deal with, you know, American problems. They, you know, like I said, the Taliban are not, they've pulled women out of education. They've pulled women out of the government. And, and I despise that. I think it's despicable. But who am I to say how they should run their country? You know, they're, they're working off of thousands of years of, of, of a religion, of a culture, and that's their culture, and that's who they are. Um, what, I, what I don't agree with is, especially when, when we're talking about women and we're talking about, you know, trying to take women down and, and not letting them um, be a part of leadership or be a part of the government, um, that when they do rise up and they, they ask for it, that you, tr you need to consider that. Um, you, you don't need to stay in the old ways. You, you can still have the religion. You can still have the culture. And you can still progress. You can progress to something that's, um, that is more freedom for all, that is legitimately equality for everyone that's there. And, and I do think they get that wrong. It, it, there is not much equality in that system. It's, it's a very patriarchal system that um, doesn't allow women to be a part of the society in the way that they should be. Now, they would listen to this and say that I'm an idiot and that women have a very good place in that culture. And if they abide by the rules set by that religion or by that culture, then um, they're playing their part. Um, and as men, they're supposed to protect those women. So it's, it's a consideration of, are we trying to change an entire people's culture? Um, or are we doing what we think is right? And sometimes that can be the same thing. Um, I, I just don't have the answer for that. Yeah, and and morality, morality in itself can be like a tricky thing, right? Like what we think is right, which I really do think is right, but it's like, is it right to them? You know what I mean? And um, as far as the women goes, do you think there is some women over there who are fine with? Oh yes, you know how they treat them. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. They're they're. I, I don't know if there's a majority, but yeah, there are, there are women there who, um, I guess I could say understood, they understand, uh, where they fit in that culture and, um, and they appreciate it and they see themselves as a, uh, you know, a, a functioning part of that society. And they, even though they are told they can't drive, they can't hold positions of power. 
they can't educate themselves. They still think, you know, they still believe that without, without them, the society would collapse. Um, and some of that is true. Uh, you know, they, they do a lot of, um, taking, you know, it's, it's kind of like 1950s us, right. Taking, taking care of the house, taking care of the kids, putting, putting meals on the table. Um, if, if you completely took that out of their society, it could completely collapse. And there are a lot of women there that, that do understand that. And, um, and they approve of it and they don't want to go to, they kind of see our society and how we progress as, um, I guess for lack of a better term, d demonic or, um, or just not right with how society should be. Yeah. And is that, would you say that's all they're really doing is treating the women like we did in the fifties or is it a lot worse? I've heard a lot of really barbaric things. Yeah. Is I that mean, true? I mean, if we, it's, it's, there are barbaric things. If, if you take what's happening in Iran right now, uh, there was a 22 year old female who was not properly wearing her headdress or her hijab. Um, and in Iran, if you're a woman and your hair flows freely, um, they have what's called the morality police and they, they come in and they put you in jail. Well, what we found out was they beat her to death just because she wasn't wearing, uh, her proper headdress, you know, her hair was flowing in the wind. You think of the, the fifties, but we did not treat women like that. Yeah. You know, we treat, we treated women pretty disgustingly, uh, back in the past, but there was no beating a woman to death by the police because uh, she didn't cover her face. Yeah, it sounds like the Handmaid's Tale or something. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, so at some point we probably, well, I don't know, United States, oddly, and it's kind of weird that we've only been around for three or 400 years or whatever. Very but, young country. Yeah, at some point we we probably were maybe as barbaric as that, or maybe not. Would you say we were never that, maybe not that barbaric where we were killing them, but at some point. I mean, w there were times where women couldn't hold land. Um, everything fell on the husband and the, the husband could, yeah, couldn't vote. Yeah. Um, the husband could beat the wife uh, basically to death with no repercussions. Um, I don't know of it of a government um, or a police force that would that would kill a woman for being immoral, but um, it could have happened. Uh, just not schooled on you know sort of the history of morality in this country, but we did have a, a very you know Quaker based morale morality um, government for for a while. Yeah, and women were seen as lesser people. Yeah, I think it was a lot of the bar I guess like barbaric stuff that happened was probably more behind closed doors in this country, you know, than yeah. actual yeah. having police. But yeah, so moving on to um the Russian war. This is also something that I know very little about because I don't watch enough news, but um <laughs> I don't I don't know exactly how long you want to go, but um if you could just uh, go into that a little bit, um yeah. Yeah, so to let me know too how much time you have because I know it's late there. So yeah, I've got a I got a few more minutes, and, and so I'll okay, try okay. to I'll try to give you as much information as I can yeah. in, in a condensed form. So okay, like I said, we were um, 
uh, I do This Week Explain, which is a geopolitical podcast. Um, and it started in November. Uh, I started noticing. Now, I do all the research. I, I use my, um, my background as an intelligence analyst to take in information and predict outcomes based off of that information. And what I saw was Russia was using the guise of um, military uh, training exercises to build up troops along the border of Ukraine. And then Putin started talking in these uh, these very at least like veiled comments of I want to bring Russia back to the Soviet Union to the USSR you know back to where it, back bring it back to its glory, um, and so he's kind of got these troops on the border. He's talking about bringing the USSR back. Uh, one of the the countries from the USSR was Ukraine. Um, he started calling. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, which is the president of Ukraine, a uh, a puppet called him a Nazi. So the, the name name calling started, and I kind of got this. Uh, I kind of made this prediction that you know I think he's going to invade Ukraine, and, and I started. Uh, anytime you're you're going to make a prediction, you want to look at a calendar and you want to see kind of these major events that are going on, and and so. Um, February timeframe of this year of 2022 uh, was the Winter Olympics, and that was being held in, in China. And I kind of saw he was meeting a lot with Chinese President Xi. And what I gathered from his meetings with him was that he was assuring President Xi that he would not invade Ukraine until directly after the Winter Olympics. And now I'm, I'm saying this stuff in December. Um, I believe uh, posted up an episode on December 3rd where I said that he will invade Ukraine right after the Winter Olympics. Um, and so the, the day after the closing ceremony of the Winter Olympics, the first troops move into Ukraine. Now, Putin called this a, um, and he still calls this a um, special military operation. So he does not outwardly say it's a war. And why doesn't he do that? Because if he declares war on Ukraine, you know, that's going to bring in NATO. That's going to bring in the U.S. And it's going to actually have troops on the ground there. So if he officially declares it a war, that's the most likely um, action that's going to happen towards him. And what he's also doing is waiting. Um, he's waiting for Ukraine to kind of make a mistake militarily where he can declare war. He's been waiting for that since the onset of this uh, of this military campaign or what is really a war with Ukraine. And um, what what's going on right now is uh, there have been some major defeats for the Russian military, and it's stuff that um, really. The, the Russian military and Russian leadership to include Putin didn't see coming. So when they started the war, uh, we kind of, myself, other intelligence analysts kind of saw him going through um, the, the uh, Dnipro River there, which runs through the capital of Kiev in Ukraine, and kind of taking that over and going straight into Kiev and basically taking over Kiev and installing his own puppet regime into Ukraine, thus effectively taking over Ukraine. He thought he could do that by April. 
reason he thought that was he was assured that if Russian military went into Kiev, they would, uh, you know, put down arms, say, okay, we're Russians anyway. This is your country now. Take over. Well, that didn't happen. And, and Russia was never able to take Kiev. So by May, they had to reconsolidate troops to southeast Ukraine. And they started taking places like uh, Kharkiv and Kherson. And it was kind of slow moving, but he decided that he would take the time uh, to do that in order to finally uh, push all troops back into Kiev and, and fully take it over. What he didn't expect was um, two successful Ukrainian counteroffensives, one that was overtly planned and one that was covertly planned. Mind-boggling, both of them were very successful. Um, and so that gets us to where we're at today. So we've got two successful Ukrainian counteroffensives that are taking back land um, that Russian military occupied. So uh, what happened yesterday, I don't know, you said you haven't been really reading it, keeping track of it, um, which is great for your mental health. Uh, and you should probably continue to not keep track of it right now. But um, what what it hap what's happening there is yesterday, this is, uh, was this the, the so the September 21st is when this happened. Putin came out. And he said he is going to now um, conscript up to 300,000 Russian reservists and put them into the war to fight back against Ukraine, which has got Russians up in arms. There's protests all over the place. Um, the, the disturbing thing about that is these protesters are being arrested and they're being immediately um, conscripted into the Russian military and put on the front lines in Ukraine. Now, what, what Putin is trying to do is take back that land that was, that Ukraine got during the counteroffensives. Um, and in doing so, he is holding a, a referendum in each of these locations. So uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, um, Kherson. And what the referendum will do is, uh, or what Putin hopes the referendum will do, is that the people will vote to be a um, considered a Russian city. So then they will become Russian, uh, Russian property, Russian land. And, um, and according to uh, Russia's um, nuclear agreement or nuclear constitution, if Russian land is attacked by an enemy force, they, uh, Russia is authorized to use tactical nuclear weapons against that military. Um, so what he's trying to do right now is fully consider that land in eastern Ukraine as Russian land. Once that's considered Russian land, if Ukraine continues to fight and hit sites in the, at those points and in that land, he can now use tactical nuclear weapons on Ukraine, um, which the shock and awe of those weapons would most likely uh, demoralize not, not only the Ukrainian military, but the Ukrainian people. And it would be his possible way to actually get into Kiev and install his puppet regime and take over that country. Um, and, and so that's where we stand right now and there and, and over the next few months of what could happen. Wow, that, that's a lot. So it's just, yeah. 
it's just it's just sad that a lot of these countries are you know live it's just living in chaos you know and you kind of said um that it's probably better that i don't really follow up on this stuff for my mental health but that that's the question that i ask i'm like i don't really necessarily know if it is better you know what i mean like i, I probably right. should really know what's going on i don't want to be blindsided obviously i do find out a lot of stuff like you know third hand or whatever yeah well, but... it's, it's tough because we don't know what trusted sources are um and, and even somebody who's skilled in identifying that in this day and age um don't know because we believe something like the associated press or, or reuters or the bbc we think of these as trusted sources but a lot of times they can be fooled by misinformation and so then you read an article and you start looking at it and you go, this doesn't make any sense. What is what is going on here? I don't even know how we got here. And, and maybe a month down the line, you, you find out, well, that was misinformation. Uh, and then I got worked up for nothing. Um, yeah. And that that's really what Russia is using to their advantage. Yeah, that's why I mean, I, I feel like I take most of the stuff that I read on the Internet with like a grain of salt. Like, you know, I, I see kind of like crazy headlines every day and it's just like i mean you know who knows what's real or, or fake anymore you know i right. mean and, and obviously that's why i say is... to go to different sources um yeah and, and when you're reading it two things to think about is what is your initial inherent bias when you're reading it are you reading it and agreeing immediately um, just because it's how you believe automatically um and then the so if, if that's the case, then try to go to a source that's totally the opposite and see where that middle ground is, because it usually is always in the middle ground. The truth is always in the middle. Um, and then the other thing with that is and it goes right to multiple sources um, and you're reading an article, kind of try to identify what it's how is it trying to make you feel? You know, every journalist is trying to make a person feel a certain way about a situation. If you can identify what that journalist is trying or how they're trying to make you feel, you can kind of push aside that mental state of the feelings and then read the content just for what it is. Um, and, and then formulate, you, you can formulate opinions. You formulate your opinion through the facts that you're reading yeah it, and it sounds like your podcast it sounds like you're you know you you have good information and it sounds like you're some you know unbiased and so I, I should probably check out your podcast and um also one thing that i that i will say that i definitely know that i do not liked like is like when i hear anything that's like mean-spirited and a lot of um you know, my dad listens to a lot of like Fox News. He even listens to, like Infowars and stuff, like Alex Jones, that type of stuff. Mm. And um, yeah, really, really far extreme, you know. And it's like, a lot of the stuff that I hear, even from like I don't know your political beliefs or what you watch, but like Tucker Carlson, that type of stuff, mm -hmm. just comes off like they're trying to like wage war. You know what I mean? It's just like they're like, yeah. we need to do something about this right now. And it's like you have these old people who don't know any better believe and it's it's just 
it's just bad. It's hurtful. It's sad. You know, it's like, yeah, it doesn't need to be this extreme. It doesn't need to be this tribal. It's like everyone just relax. Like we have it. We, I know some countries don't have it good, but for the most part, I feel like we have it pretty good here. Honestly. And I think, yeah, so. we, we manufacture and, a lot of hate and aggression. Yeah. And, and so and there's these, no like, point for like it. I mentioned, uh, definitely there's no point. Um, but, but what I, I bring up about, things like Fox news or MSNBC, if you want to go both, you know, two polar opposites, two very different spectrums, they all have one goal in mind is to make money. You know, here we have a for-profit news, um, I, I guess a, a news conglomerate and they're all culpable in it. And it, they, they have very intelligent people that come in and do marketing and they go, they know what the audience wants, and they're going to give it to the audience. Um, so if that is incendiary, if, that's, if that calls for violence, they don't care. Because it's not, you know, they are safe. The, the, the Tucker Carlson's or the Rachel Maddow's, they're, they're safe. They don't care what you do with the information that they give you. They just care that you're watching and that's what gives them money. Um, yeah, and if you if you think about, I don't really want. I obviously don't want to say the worst type of person, but what bad viewpoint? You know what I mean? Like we don't care that we're causing violence and we're manipulating right. people to do bad things as long as we make money. Like that. That's 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 horrible, and that's why I feel like somewhat justified. And not watching either. Yeah. And so, do you not do you not watch either of of either the CNN, the MSNBC, or Fox? I no. Where do I you don't, get most of your information? So, um, uh, my sources a lot of times, like I, if I'm going global, I really I really lean on BBC because they do a great historical background of everything that that happens. I think history tells us a lot, especially in. Um, world events and geopolitics and stuff like that. So if I'm going a global scale, I, I will go that route. Um, if I am doing any information on a particular incident that happened in the United States, and, and I tell people this all the time, you've got to go local. You got to get away from from Fox News and MSNBC. Uh, so to answer the question, I don't watch the major cable news uh, programs. I just don't do it. I don't I don't think that the news that they're providing is accurate um, or, and it doesn't fulfill the purpose that I'm trying to achieve. So I go local. Um, you know, if, if something is going on in San, you know, homelessness in San Francisco, it, it's a, it's a huge ordeal. Okay. How do I know that? Well, I go to um, the, the, the San Francisco paper. I will go to the local San Francisco channels and it'll, we have great access to that with the internet. You know, I, I kind of crapped on the internet for a while <laughs> saying this, you know, technologies, I'd rather get away from it. But we do, like you said, have these technologies that can benefit us. And you can watch a news report uh, on the streets of San Francisco and, and see what's really going on there. And, and those are a lot of the times journalists who are just trying to get information out there. They're not trying to feed you um, information to make you believe something um, is a certain way. And what they really have is they have this 
in-depth knowledge of the location. And so you really get that in the reporting. They're not, you know, they're not Tucker Carlson telling you that, that San Francisco is this um, liberal cesspool or, you know, Rachel Maddow saying that, you know, Mississippi is just this poor conservative cesspool. Um, it, it's just <laughs> saying what's what's actually happening as, yeah. as opposed to trying to make you feel a certain way about a certain part of society. Yeah, well, that's another weird another thing that I feel happens, too, is when I talk to friends who are more conservative than I am. I'll be like, you know, and uh, Fox or Trump or whatever, they're all, they just, they seem like they're mean, bad people or, or whatever, you know, they seem extremely biased or whatever, but then they'll say, oh, well, the left's the same way. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that, I mean, the whole thing is, is maybe that is true. I, I, I don't even really know. But that doesn't but fix like, who you are, you know? No, exactly. I, yeah. That's not I always like a really tell- good justification for like, oh, well. You know, that's it just one side's bad, but the other side is too. It's just, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's it's whataboutism. It's, um, you know, Trump does something and conservatives go, yeah, well, you know, Biden did this. Well, it's like, well, that doesn't fix the problem. Yeah. Saying somebody else did something that's equally as bad isn't a solution. And I like to live my life working for solutions. You know, if I get, if I get a problem, put in my way it's not beneficial to society or to myself to just complain about it so yeah oh i hate this problem you got to find a solution um and the solution in a lot of those situations um is to educate yourself on on your worldview um to educate yourself on what you think is beneficial to the country to your community to to society as a whole um and I think you see, as humans get kind of stuck in this rut of if I change my opinion, I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I failed. And if I failed, then no one can trust me anymore. And, and that's not the case. Um, I had a, you know, I was years ago, I heard somebody that I respect very much talking on a podcast. And he said, if you don't change your opinion after five years, you're probably wrong. Because as society grows, you need to grow as well. That doesn't mean to follow society, but it means to question things and to better yourself. Like, don't worry about, you know, don't don't worry about what's going on in a lot of these different places. You know, worry about what is concerning your family. Learn about what's concerning your community and get out into your community and do things to better that. Yeah, that is that is a pretty wild viewpoint to, that like you should be changing your mind every five five years. And I'm I'm definitely not saying it's wrong. You know, I I agree with it, but I like you just said. I think that part of being a human is like, yeah, I have to like stick to my guns and keep my yeah. my perspective. And when I was young, I noticed that, or not noticed, but I just I I I really kind of like getting into debates and really defending my viewpoint and. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know what? Like it, I, I almost want to say it doesn't even matter. Like it's like, because you could say, oh, well, no, it does matter. Your viewpoint does matter. But it's like, I'm not well, changing what, anybody's mind. Like if I get into a debate with my family, all it's going to do is just piss me off. Maybe yeah. piss them no, off. And it's no like, one better changes just, their mind. yeah. And it's like, I, I got into a big debate with, I've gotten into multiple now because of the whole 
in you know info wars type conspiracy theory right. stuff with my dad and it, i i don't even let it piss me off unless he just says something that i just know is outright just wrong and and, and untrue and i got i've gotten angry with him a couple times and then afterwards i apologize i'm like you know um and sorry you know i, I shouldn't have done that i don't know why i did you know he kind of drove me to that point but but the one thing his wife said said to me was like you know what like he he can and it's funny that i'm using her as an example of what you know what 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 was said to me but that was correct but it was like basically like he can believe whatever he wants to believe and it's like that's yeah. true you know what i mean he can believe whatever he wants to believe uh, unless and he's I using those beliefs to kill someone else <laughs> yeah exactly you which know? is not right. and it's like the whole thing is he's not but it's like honestly some people are doing some damage by some of those beliefs but anyways i didn't want to yeah. go too far down the road no but that, you, but... you brought you bring up a good point because I, I was the same way you know i love to debate i always wanted to debate because i always thought i was right um and i wanted to get those facts out there and show people how smart i was um and as, as a younger person that was beneficial to me but now i find myself i love to hear another person's perspective I love to understand who they are as a person coming from their perspective, from their worldview. And I don't need to change that. And I don't need to change my worldview. But if I can understand them, if I can understand where they're coming from and who they are, I can appreciate them as a human being more so than when I'm listening to something just to attack them with my own facts and logic. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know why I get, I've gotten as triggered as I have. You know, I hate to use that word, but... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I, I really have gotten angry and it's like, I don't know why I wish I wish I hadn't after the situation. And it's like, I feel I feel justified when I'm doing it. Like, I, you know, I'm right. You're wrong type thing. But at the end of the day, it's just like there's no reason in debating. But there there are a ton of other things that I want to talk about. Unfortunately, we don't have time yeah um but one thing that i wanted to ask you was i've heard a lot about something that like you know my my dad for instance my family is against and they talk about a lot they bring it up a lot is global globalism and i guess mm -hmm. i guess it would be versus nas nationalism yeah and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the wars and stuff how do you feel about globalism do you feel like our country is 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 trying to I guess you could say globalize everything or whatever. Like we're, we're trying to be one, um, uh, one world order. Yeah. That my dad talks about that type of thing a lot. Do you feel like anything like that is true? And if it is true, do you believe so, in that over nationalism or like, do you have an opinion on, on those? So, so the, the funny thing about conspiracy theories and how conspiracy theories become these, uh, you know, these massive communities is that, Every conspiracy has a hint of truth. And, and the reason they sort of spread as quickly as they do is because, you know, a conspiracy theory will say something outlandish like the, you know, the, the cabal, you know, the U.S. is run by a cabal of leaders that are looking to globalize the entire world. And you go, well, that's false. That is 100% not true. <laughs> and then they'll come with the, you'll see an article where it goes, 
here is, you know, and Alex Jones does this. It's uh, here is this group of people and they have made the last, you know, five or six presidents. They have put world leaders in Canada and the UK and, and they were all a part of this one group. And you go, well, if you read the entire thing, if you actually research what you're doing, you find that um, while there's no coincidence to it, um, I, I'm just not a person who believes in coincidences. Um, it's just, how do you think people become leaders? That they, they network, they, they get into the same groups that, you know, that doesn't mean that they're actually doing something wrong. Um, I believe it's called uh, Arkham's Razor, where it's, uh, you know, don't, don't put to malice what you can identify as um, in sometimes stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> so don't just go towards, oh, this great delusional, you know, the lizard people are coming to, to take over the world just because you see this, this tiny bit of truth in there. So are we moving to a global, globalized society? Yeah, the internet is doing that. Um, it, it's not these leaders. So social media is making us a globalized society. Um, are we a nationalist sort of, of nation? There's a lot of bad ideology that comes out of nationalism. Um, but there are some good points to staying within our borders and, and stopping these um, these wars of democracy trying to push democracy when we as the united states aren't even a democracy we're a constitutional republic um and and so should we like i said you have two sides of the coin or, or two opposing positions and the best thing is probably in the middle you know we have a globalized society and that's great do you know how much we can learn from people from other countries um, that we'll never meet face to face just based off of social media. It's incredible. Um, but we also need to protect our own borders. We also need to protect our own people um, and, and maybe stop sending out these, um, you know, stop performing these democracy wars where we're trying to prop up other nations. Um, and, and just because we're doing that, just because we're sending out and, and trying to install our own. Um, our own leadership in other countries doesn't necessarily mean that the, the that the world is getting globalized by one group of people. Yeah, would you? I mean, would you say that that like the whole globalization thing is mostly a conspiracy theory then, or do you yeah, feel it, like there is some truth in the fact that like maybe things would be better if there if, if you know every country wasn't so tribal like there is some aspects to it that i'm like oh maybe maybe some of that really is going on you know what i mean yeah and like like i said it it is um but what what happens what we're starting to see happen is um people are losing their culture when they're when they're doing this um and they lose who they are as a person but uh right now you know we we're well, not right now, but uh, three or four years ago, there was a lot of talk about you know, open borders and we need to let anyone in. And this country was built on, on immigrants and the hard work of people who weren't originally from here. Um, but when you, mass, you have mass migration and you open up your borders to just anyone without verifying who that person is, it becomes a problem. 
and the problems stem from, you know, lack of infrastructure, um, a worsening economy, no jobs. Um, and, and so that's where globalization can go wrong is just letting people move about and, um, and without questioning their intentions, be a part of maybe another society or another culture that they'll never assimilate into just because, um, just because we think we have a right to be anywhere and everywhere on this planet. Yeah. I, I actually interviewed a guy who has a podcast and he, he got some bigger name tech guy on his podcast. I, I I'm forgetting the name and he's not that big, but, and I listened to it and at the end, the guy was talking about nationalism and he was saying how borders when we drew the borders or whatever, like there was really like no reason for them. We just kind of like, you know, like there's really, mm -hmm. we essentially made up borders. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, and the only reason why we're here and we think that we have the right to be here and, and don't get me wrong. I, I agree with everything you just said in terms of we, we can't just have, it's, it's difficult. We can't just have some sort of mass migration of, you know, me Mexicans or, or whoever, coming over it's got to be we got to you know be careful and know what we're doing but the only reason why we're here essentially we came over and slaughtered a bunch of indians and yeah mexicans probably or i don't even know you know for sure indians and you know others the only reason why anybody is justified or not even justified is just able to live in the area where they're living this was at one point we came, they came over and slaughtered everyone. That's exactly what to Ukraine right now, yeah. you know, and it's just like, that's not like a good, you know, Christian viewpoint or whatever. It, but anyways, um, so yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's as easy to say we should just let everyone come over right now, but yeah, so would you, if you don't mind me asking, would you consider yourself more left-leaning or, or uh, right-leaning or maybe just totally one or the other? Um, I mean, I, for, for a long time, now I came from a very conservative um, family, so that sort of um, skewed my worldview for a while until I got out into the world and kind of and saw things. So I would have considered myself really right-leaning, um, and as I moved on, as I, as I got into these different cultures and appreciated different cultures, I moved more towards, um, towards a, a left leaning, but I really consider myself, um, like a true libertarian kind of person where it's, it's really about you as a person, um, are an individual. You don't fit into every box that a government tries to put you into. So I'm for a smaller government. Uh, I don't think that all these agencies that the government has started has our best interests at heart. Um, and I don't think everybody should be all lumped in uh, under one umbrella. So um, I don't, I, I really get disgusted by things that people say on the right towards, you know, migrants or, you know, towards women or trans people or, or you know, L any LGBTQ person. Uh, I get very disgusted hearing them talk about people, but then I also get very disgusted in hearing people on the left um, force other people to 
sort of say and believe things that they don't necessarily think is is right or correct. But they have to say it in order to keep a job or, you know, in order to be a part of a social media community. Um, so I, I'm firmly in the middle on that. And that's where I always like to, to fall back to, even whenever, you know, my past or my present tries to change me to leaning left or right. You know, it gets my emotions going. Like you talked about when you're, when you're talking to your dad and you let your emotions get, get the best of you. It, it's human nature. We all have that. Um, I, I always try to come back to the middle. And the way I do that is, is I ask myself, why does this upset me so much? Does it actually affect me? Uh, does it do anything to me? Does it do anything to my family or my community? And when you when you really think about it, 99% of the stuff we get emotional or angry about has nothing to do with us. Um, and, and it has nothing to do with um, someone putting harm on our family. So uh, I hope that answered the question. I think I went a uh, roundabout long way around that. I'm, I'm very small government. Um, I, I think that, you know, being fiscally conservative is a good thing especially for a government, um, not just spending money willy-nilly on every kind of thing that you want to spend it on. That includes the military. But then I also believe that, you know, we should have safety nets for people who, who aren't as well off and who can't do the, who don't have the ability to do the kind of things that maybe I can do or, or other people who own businesses can do. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're very level-headed and um, yeah, the last thing I want to ask you is, and I ask every guest this is um, are there any good podcasts you listen to that either cover this subject or don't any, any type of podcast or to you would like to recommend. And a lot of this just has to do with me, like kind of always looking for podcasts and TVs or movies that you would, that I, that um, I would um, want to watch. So one, if one that I really like on the um, what what is considered the politically homeless um, thing is uh, Bridget, Bridget Fetisy. She does a podcast. She's a comedian. She's been on Rogan before. I have heard her like, name. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she kind of coined that term um, politically homeless where it's just what I described. You, you see both of these competing sides and you're like, I don't fit into any of that. Who am I? Um, so she's sort of built that community up and her podcasts deal a lot with society and culture today, which is great and fascinating. Um, uh, as far as news podcasts, now, like I said, BBC, um, BBC does great on their news podcasts. I, I would say, listen to them. They usually are level-headed. They're usually not trying to push a certain agenda. I was talking to a British guy um, a couple days ago because I was asking him about that. And he said, well, you know, it's the BBC is backed by the government. So they have to stay as a centrist. They can't go one side or the other because the government won't allow it. Um, so they put a lot of good stuff out. Um, as far as like TV shows that I've been watching, if you want to get out of all of this and, and, improve your mental health and you have apple tv i highly recommend ted lasso i don't care if you like sports um if you don't like soccer it is the most encouraging uplifting show you will ever watch and it is hilarious 
Okay, yeah, I definitely have heard of that one. I'll I'll check it out. Yeah, it's uh, Jason Sudeikis is is the lead. It's a it's an American who goes to to the UK to coach soccer, um, and just you know dealing you know kind of being in that culture shock of he knows nothing about it, um, but he has sort of these great these great one liners like w- one once he one of the the kids it's not kids but these are soccer players and he messes up and he runs to the sideline and tell Lasso says, Hey, you be a goldfish. And he's like, what? He says, you know, a, a goldfish forgets every few seconds. Be a goldfish. Just forget, you know, forget you made that mistake. Or he says things like, you know, be inquisitive. If you ask people about themselves, they'll tell you and you can form now an opinion more fact-based. So there's a lot of great things to, to, to take from that show. Yeah. Okay. Great. And lastly, your podcast, I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out is called, um, what is it called again? I, f- I forgot the name. Uh, it's this week explained. Um, I call it uh, all the news from the week that was. And so what I try to do is, uh, and I've been asked before that, why don't you do a daily podcast of all the news? And I tell them, I tell people that that's the problem with society. We're given information and then we automatically form an opinion and spew out that opinion. What I'm trying to do is pull in all the information throughout the week and then give a factually based, uh, hopefully unopinionated and unbiased um, news information within the podcast. And then we also end the podcast with, uh, with this segment I call or that we call history's mysteries where um, right now we're talking about misinformation within a historical context, you know, going back to the t- to 1500s and things like that. We also deal with, um, you know, these great intelligence failures that have happened is quite educational. All right. Sounds good. And is it just you on the podcast or do you have like a, ho- a co-host? Yeah, we have, I have a co-host. It's my, uh, my wife of 17 years. And um, she's just got an inquisitive mind. So she asks all kinds of great questions about what's going on in the world. Okay, cool. Have, have you heard um, Dan Carlin before? He has like one called Hardcore History, but then he also has another one. I haven't heard. No, I haven't heard of those. Yeah, he's been, on, he's been on Joe Rogan. The reason why I brought him up is because he, he, he's a very smart guy and he he only releases one every like – well, he has the hardcore history thing, but then he has another one where he talks about politics or whatever's going on in the news. And he only releases one every once in a while, but whenever he does, it's like, he's really, you know, he's just a really good talker, unbiased, very, you know, very good speaker. And it, it kind of just reminded me of, of yours a little bit. Um, or he at least reminds me of you a little bit, but yeah. I'll so thanks. Out. Yeah. Thanks Kervin for coming on. And if you ever want to come back on to talk about, the stuff that we didn't go over, like the CIA yeah, definitely. and China and all that. Just let me know. Oh, I sure will. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good one. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye.